This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of tibial shaft fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Diaphyseal tibial fractures are the most common long bone fracture. Diagnosis is confirmed by plain radiographs of the tibia and adjacent joints. Treatment is generally operative with intramedullary nailing. In rare cases, external fixation or ORIF is more appropriate depending on the location and orientation of the fracture. Moving on to the epidemiology, as far as the incidence of tibial shaft fracture, these are the most common long bone fractures and make up about 17% of all lower extremity fractures. They also account for 4% of all fractures seen in the Medicare population. As far as the demographics, males are more affected than females. With respect to age bracket, tibial shaft fractures have a bimodal distribution. Young patients sustain these injuries secondary to high-energy mechanisms, while older patients sustain these injuries secondary to falls and lower-energy mechanisms. In terms of anatomic location, note that proximal third tibia fractures account for 5-10% to of tibial shaft fractures. Moving on to the etiology, as far as pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury can be secondary to low-energy mechanisms like falling from standing, twisting, etc., or high-energy fractures secondary to motor vehicle accidents, falls from a height, athletics, etc. So in terms of low-energy mechanisms of injury, this is the result of indirect torsional injury, which leads to a spiral fracture pattern with fibula fracture at a different level. There is a high association of posterior malleolus fractures with spiral distal tibia fractures. Know that low-energy mechanism tibial shaft fractures are more likely to be associated with a lower degree of soft tissue injury. Moving on to high-energy fractures, these are the result of direct force, which leads to a wedge or short oblique fracture that may have significant comminution with the fibula fracture at the same level. These are more likely to be associated with severe soft tissue injury, for example, an Ostern and Schoen 2-3, as well as open fractures. In terms of pathoanatomy, in the setting of proximal third tibia fractures, you must rule out extension into the tibial plateau on plane films or a CT scan. Know that there is a high risk for valgus-slash-procurvatum deformity with intramedullary nailing. With respect to distal third tibia fractures, there are higher rates of ankle injuries seen with distal third tibia fractures and spiral fracture patterns. Know that posterior malleolus fractures are most commonly associated with ankle injury, which in some cases may affect syndesmotic stability. Know that in the setting of a distal third tibia fracture, extension into or adjacent to the tibial plafond may require separate-slash-additional fixation and are managed differently than tibial shaft fractures. Associated conditions with tibial shaft fractures include soft tissue injury, compartment syndrome, bone loss, and ipsilateral skeletal injury. So with respect to soft tissue injury, know that severity of muscle injury has the highest impact on eventual need for amputation. With respect to compartment syndrome, this is more common in diaphyseal tibial shaft fractures than proximal or distal tibial fractures. There is an 8.1% risk in diaphyseal fractures compared to proximal fractures, which is 1.6%, and distal fractures, which is 1.4%. Know that compartment syndrome can occur even in the setting of an open fracture. Remember that all four compartments must be examined. If the patient is unable to participate in examination and concern is high clinically, intracompartmental compartment measurements should be performed. Ipsilateral skeletal injuries in the setting of a tibial shaft fracture includes tibial plateau fractures, tibial plafond fractures, femoral shaft fractures, and posterior malleolar fractures. In the setting of a femoral shaft fracture, know that a floating knee is an indication for antegrade tibial nailing and retrograde femoral nailing. In the setting of a posterior malleolus fracture, this typically occurs in distal third and spiral tibial shaft fractures. 
Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over osteology, muscles, ligaments, blood supply, nervous system, and biomechanics. So starting with osteology, the tibial shaft is triangular in cross-section. The proximal medullary canal is centered laterally and is important for the starting point with intramedullary nailing. Know that the anteromedial tibial crest is composed of dense cortical bone and rests in a subcutaneous position, making it useful as a landmark. The tibial tubercle sits anterolaterally approximately 3 centimeters distal to the joint line. This is the attachment of the patellar tendon. Gertie's tubercle lies laterally on the proximal tibia, and this is the attachment of the iliotibial band. Finally, the pes anserinus lies medially on the proximal tibia. This is the attachment of the sartorius, semitendinosus, and gracilis. As far as muscles, the anterior compartment contains the tibialis anterior, the extensor digitorum longus, or EDL, and the extensor hallucis longus, or EHL. The lateral compartment contains the peroneus longus and the peroneus brevis. The superficial posterior compartment contains the gastrocnemius, that is specifically the medial and lateral heads, the soleus, the popliteus, and the plantaris. The deep posterior compartment contains the tibialis posterior, the flexor digitorum longus, or FDL, and flexor hallucis longus, or FHL. As far as ligaments, the superficial medial collateral ligament, or MCL, attaches approximately 5 to 7 centimeters distal to the joint line, deep to the pes anserinus. Note that the adjacent fibula supports attachments for the lateral collateral ligament complex and the long head of the biceps femoris. The blood supply of the tibia includes the anterior tibial artery, the perineal artery, the posterior tibial artery, the medial sural artery, and the lateral sural artery. As far as the nervous system, the structures to know include the superficial perineal nerve, the deep perineal nerve, the tibial nerve, and the sural nerve. Finally, in terms of biomechanics, know that the proximal tibiofibular joint is a gliding synovial joint, and know that the tibia is responsible for about 80 to 85% of lower extremity weight-bearing. The interosseous membrane is a fibrous structure interconnecting the tibia slash fibula, which provides axial stability. Finally, in terms of the tibiofibular syndesmosis, the fibula rests in the distal tibial incisura and is stabilized by syndesmotic ligaments. These include the anterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, or AITFL, the posterior inferior tibiofibular ligament, or the PITFL, the inferior transverse tibiofibular ligament, or the ITL, and the interosseous ligament, or the IOL, which is a continuation of the interosseous membrane. Know that syndesmotic stability can be affected by distal spiral tibial shaft fractures. Now, let's talk about the classification of tibial shaft fractures. The ones to know include the OTA classification, the Ostern and Schoen classification of closed fracture soft tissue injury, and the Gastillo-Anderson classification of open tibia fractures. So know that fracture classification is primarily descriptive based on pattern and location. So with the OTA classification, the tibia is designated as region 42, and this is divided into three types, 42A, B, and C. 42A corresponds to simple fracture patterns, 42B corresponds to a wedge pattern, and 42C corresponds to a complex slash comminuted pattern. Moving on to the Ostern and Schoen classification of closed fracture soft tissue injury, this is divided into four grades, grade 0, grade 1, grade 2, and grade 3. Grade 0 involves injuries from indirect forces with negligible soft tissue damage. Grade 1 corresponds to superficial contusion slash abrasion and simple fractures. Grade 2 corresponds to deep abrasions, muscle-slash-skin contusion, direct trauma, and impending compartment syndrome. Grade 3 corresponds to excessive skin contusion, crushed skin or destruction of muscle, subcutaneous degloving, acute compartment syndrome, and rupture of major blood vessels or nerves. 
Finally, moving on to the Gastello-Anderson classification of open tibia fractures, this is divided into three types. Type 1, type 2, and type 3. And type 3 is subdivided into three subtypes, type 3A, 3B, and 3C. Type 1 corresponds to limited periosteal stripping and a clean wound of less than 1 centimeter. Type 2 corresponds to minimal periosteal stripping, a wound of greater than 1 centimeter in length without extensive soft tissue injury damage. Type 3A corresponds to significant soft tissue injury often evidenced by a segmental fracture or comminution, significant periosteal stripping, a wound that is usually greater than 5 centimeters in length, and no flap is required. Type 3B corresponds to significant periosteal stripping and soft tissue injury. A flap is required due to inadequate soft tissue coverage. Know that a soft tissue skin graft doesn't count. You would treat proximal third fractures with gastrocnemius rotation flap, middle third fractures with soleus rotation flaps, and distal third fractures with a free flap. Finally, with respect to type 3C injuries, these involve significant soft tissue injury, which is often evidenced by a segmental fracture or comminution, as well as vascular injury requiring repair to maintain limb viability. For prognostic reasons, severely comminuted contaminated barnyard injuries, close-range shotgun-slash-high-velocity gunshot injuries, and open fractures presenting over 24 hours from injury have all been included in the grade 3 group. Moving on to the presentation of tibial shaft fractures, symptoms include severe leg pain, inability to bear weight, and deformity. Physical exam includes inspection, palpation, motion, and neurovascular injury. Inspection may reveal deformity, angulation, and malrotation, contusions, blisters, and or open wounds. With respect to palpation, be sure to check firmness of each compartment to evaluate for compartment syndrome. In terms of motion assessment, fracture crepitus may be noted. On neurovascular exam, specifically the peripheral nerve exam, be sure to test the deep perineal nerve, the superficial perineal nerve, the sural nerve, tibial nerve, and saphenous nerve. Finally, be sure to evaluate the dorsalis pedis and posterior tibial pulses and compare to the contralateral side. Doppler, if necessary, and remember that CT angiography may be indicated if pulses are not Dopplerable. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a full-length AP and lateral views of the affected tibia, AP lateral and oblique views of the ipsilateral knee and ankle, and know that repeat radiographs are recommended after splinting or fracture manipulation. Moving on to CT, this is indicated for intraarticular fracture extension or suspicion of plateau-slash-plafond involvement. A CT is also indicated for distal third or spiral tibia fractures, which is used to exclude posterior malleolar fracture. CT is also used to identify nonunion. As far as findings on CT, Remember that there may be high variation in reported incidence of posterior malleolus fractures with distal third spiral tibia fractures, that is 25 to 60%. Moving on to treatment of tibial shaft fractures, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes closed reduction slash cast immobilization, which is indicated for closed low-energy fractures with acceptable alignment, that is less than 5 degrees varus valgus angulation, less than 10 degrees anterior-posterior angulation, greater than 50% cortical apposition, less than 1 centimeter of shortening, and less than 10 degrees of rotational malalignment. Close reduction slash cast immobilization may also be indicated for certain patients who may be non-ambulatory, for example paralyzed patients, or those unfit for surgery. As far as outcomes of close reduction slash cast immobilization, know that angulation and rotational alignment are well maintained with casting, however shortening is hard to control. Know that the risk of shortening is higher with oblique and comminuted fracture patterns, and mean shortening is about 4 millimeters. There is also risk of varus malunion with mid-shaft tibia fractures and an intact fibula. There is a high success rate if acceptable alignment is maintained. 
Non-union occurs in approximately 1% of patients treated with close reduction. Operative options include IND plus antibiotics. As far as indications, note that all tibia fractures require an emergent irrigation and debridement. Surgical debridement should be done within 12 to 24 hours of injury, and wounds should be irrigated and dressed with saline-soaked gauze in the emergency department before splinting. All open tibia fractures require immediate antibiotics and should be administered within three hours of the injury. Standard antibiotics for open fractures are institution-dependent. However, cephalosporins are typically given continuously for 24 hours after definitive surgery in grade 1, 2, and 3A open fractures. Aminoglycosides are added in grade 3B injuries, however, there is minimal data to support this. Penicillin is administered in farm injuries, however, there is also minimal data to support this. But keep in mind that this theoretically covers clostridium. Tetanus vaccination status should be confirmed and appropriate prophylaxis should be administered if necessary. In terms of outcomes, early antibiotic administration is the most important factor in reducing infection. Emergent and thorough surgical debridement is also an important factor. Remember that you must remove all devitalized tissue, including cortical bone. Moving on to external fixation, as far as indications, this is considered damage control for polytrauma patients. It's also indicated for open fractures with soft tissue defects contamination, as well as proximal or distal metaphyseal fractures. In terms of techniques, uniplanar, circular, and hybrid external fixators are all available. Remember that external fixation should be converted to intramedullary nailing within 7 to 21 days, however, ideally less than 7 days. In terms of outcomes, know that there is a longer time to union and worse functional outcomes with definitive external fixation compared to intramedullary nailing in type 3 open tibia fractures. There is also a higher incidence of malalignment compared to intramedullary nailing. Finally, in the setting of external fixation, there is a high rate of pin tract infections, and be sure to avoid intraarticular placement given the risk for septic arthritis. Moving on to intramedullary nailing, indications include unacceptable alignment with close reduction in casting, soft tissue injury that will not tolerate casting, segmental fracture, comminuted fracture, ipsilateral limb injury, for example, a floating knee, polytrauma, bilateral tibia fracture, and morbid obesity. As far as techniques, you can use reamed versus unreamed nailing. However, reamed nailing allows for a larger diameter nail. Remember that you can use a superpatellar versus infrapatellar nailing approach. Note that provisional reduction techniques like blocking screws, plating, etc. are particularly useful for proximal third tibial shaft fractures. In terms of outcomes, there are union rates of greater than 80% for closed tibia fractures treated with nailing. The risks for non-union include gapping at the fracture site, open fracture, and transverse fracture patterns. Know that there is a shorter immobilization time, earlier time to weight bearing, and decreased time to union compared to casting. There is also decreased malalignment compared to external fixation. As far as suprapatellar versus infrapatellar nailing, know that there is improved fracture alignment with suprapatellar nailing. In terms of reamed versus unreamed nails, know that reamed nails may have higher union rates and lower time to union than unreamed nails in closed fractures, however this is controversial. Reamed nails are safe for use with open fractures with no evidence of decreased non-union rates in open fractures. Recent studies show no adverse effects of reaming, like infection, embolism, or non-union. Reaming with the use of a tourniquet is not associated with thermal necrosis of the tibial shaft, despite prior studies suggesting otherwise. Finally, you know that there is a higher rate of locking screw breakage with unreamed nailing. Moving on to open reduction and internal fixation, indications include proximal tibia fractures with inadequate proximal fixation from intramedullary nailing, distal tibia fractures with inadequate distal fixation from intramedullary nailing, and tibia fractures in the setting of adjacent implant hardware, for example, prior total knee arthroplasty. 
As far as outcomes, compared to intramedullary nailing of tibia fractures, there is a larger incision with ORIF, increased risk of wound complications and hardware irritation, similar rates of union in closed fractures, more difficult hardware removal, greater radiation exposure intraoperatively, and possibly less angular deformity. Know that with ORIF, there is risk of damage to the superficial perineal nerve during percutaneous screw insertion, specifically holes 11, 12, and 13 proximally of a 13-hole plate places the nerve at risk. As far as augmentation with RHBMP2, as far as indications, prior studies have demonstrated some use in open tibial shaft fractures. As far as outcomes, this is controversial as recent studies have not fully supported these findings. However, augmentation with RHBMP2 may accelerate early fracture healing, decrease the rate of hardware failure, decrease the need for subsequent autologous bone grafting, decrease the need for secondary invasive procedures, and decrease infection rate. Finally, as far as amputation, in terms of indications, there is no current scoring system to determine if an amputation should be performed. Relative indications for amputation include significant soft tissue trauma, warm ischemia time of greater than 6 hours, and severe ipsilateral foot trauma. As far as outcomes, it's important to understand the results of the LEAP study, which states that the most important predictor of eventual amputation is the severity of ipsilateral extremity soft tissue injury. The most important predictor of infection other than early antibiotic administration is transfer to a definitive trauma center. The study shows no significant difference in functional outcomes between amputation and salvage. Finally, loss of plantar sensation is not an absolute indication for amputation. Now, let's go over these management techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with close reduction slash cast immobilization, as far as the technique, you will place a long leg cast initially. You may convert to a functional patellar tendon bearing brace at around four weeks. Close follow-up with repeat radiographs ensures no displacement. You can wedge the cast to correct slight deformity, and you should monitor for skin irritation. As far as incision and drainage, in terms of timing, this should be done within 24 hours of the initial injury to decrease the risk of infection. As far as the technique, sharp debridement of non-viable soft tissue and bone should be carried out. Thorough irrigation of the contaminated wound should be done. This may require multiple debridements. And know that immediate closure of open wounds is acceptable if there's minimal contamination present and is performed without excessive skin tension. If the skin cannot be closed, vac-assisted closure should be considered in the short term. Moving on to external fixation, as far as the technique, you should bypass the fracture likely to the adjacent joint. For example, an open middle third tibial shaft fracture with placement of proximal third tibia and calcaneus slash metatarsal pins to span the fracture. Remember that construct stiffness is increased with larger pin diameter, number of pins on each side of the fracture, rods closer to bone, and a multiplanar construct. As far as complications, know that pin site infections are common. Moving on to intramedullary nailing, as far as the approach, Infrapatellar nailing can be approached with the medial power patellar approach, a lateral power patellar approach, a patellar tendon splitting approach, as well as semi-extended medial or lateral power patellar approach. So starting with the medial power patellar approach, this is the most common starting point. The incision should be made from the inferior pole of the patella to just above the tibial tubercle. Be sure to identify the medial edge of the patellar tendon and then incise and then insert the guide wire and ream. Remember that this approach can lead to valgus malalignment in proximal third tibial fractures. As far as a lateral parapatellar approach in the setting of infrapatellar nailing, this helps maintain reduction when nailing proximal third fractures. Remember that this requires a mobile patella. Moving on to a patellar tendon splitting approach in the setting of infrapatellar nailing, this gives direct access to the start point. However, it can damage the patellar tendon or lead to patella baja. However, there is minimal data to support this. 
Finally, in terms of semi-extended medial or lateral power patellar approach in the setting of infrapatellar nailing, this is used for proximal and distal tibial fractures. The skin incision should be made along the medial or lateral border of the patella from the superior pole of the patella to the upper third of the patellar tendon. The knee should be in 5 to 30 degrees of flexion. The choice to go medial or lateral is based on mobility of the patella in either direction. Be sure to identify the starting point and ream as we'll talk about in a moment. Moving on to suprapatellar nailing, otherwise known as a transquadriceps tendon approach, this requires special instruments. Remember that this can damage the patellofemoral joint, however this can technically be easier positioning if additional instrumentation is needed. Keep in mind this is more advantageous for proximal or distal third tibia fractures. As far as the starting point, the starting guide wire is placed in line with the medial aspect of the lateral tibial spine on AP radiograph just below the articular margin on the lateral view. In proximal third tibia fractures, the starting point should cheat laterally to avoid the classic valgus-slash-procravatum deformity. Ensure that the guide wire is aligned with the tibia in the coronal and sagittal planes as you insert. The opening reamer is placed over the guide wire, and a ball-tipped guide wire can then be passed. Fracture reduction can be achieved with spanning external fixation, for example, traveling traction. Other fracture reduction techniques include clamps, a femoral distractor, small fragment unicortical plate-slash-screws, as well as blocking or polar screws. This is placed in the metaphyseal segment at the concavity of the deformity. In proximal third tibia fractures, posteriorly place blocking screws in the proximal fragment and laterally place blocking screws in the metaphyseal fragment help direct the nail more centrally, avoiding valgus-slash-procravatum deformities. Remember that blocking or polar screws increase the biomechanical stability of the bone-slash-implant construct by 25%. As far as reaming, know that ream nails are superior to unreamed nails in closed fractures. Be sure to ensure the fracture is reduced before reaming. Remember to overream by 1 to 1.5 millimeters to facilitate nail insertion. Confirm the guide wire is appropriately placed prior to reaming. This should be center-center in the coronal and sagittal planes distally at the physeal scar. In terms of nail insertion, the anterior aspect of the nail should be lined up with the axis of the tibia when inserting the nail. This typically should line up with the second metatarsal in the absence of tibial deformity. Finally, in terms of locking screws, be sure to statically lock proximal and distally for rotational stability. There is no indication for dynamic locking acutely. The number of interlocking screws is controversial. You will typically place two proximal and two distal screws in the presence of less than 50% cortical contact. Consider three interlocking screws in the short segment of a distal or proximal shaft fracture. Multiplanar screw fixation is preferred in these short segments. Moving on to open reduction and internal fixation, the approach can be done laterally versus medially. Lateral may have more soft tissue interference, but may be preferred in the setting of soft tissue slash wound issues. As far as the technique, generally minimally invasive plating is used to preserve soft tissues. The plate is attached to an external jig to allow for percutaneous insertion of screws. You must ensure appropriate contour of the plate to avoid malreduction. As far as complications, there is a higher risk for wound issues, particularly in open fractures. As far as neurovascular risk, the superficial perineal nerve is commonly at risk laterally. Finally, moving on to amputation, as far as the approach, a below-knee amputation, or BKA, versus an above-knee amputation, or AKA, is based on the degree of soft tissue damage. The technique can include a standard BKA versus an ertl-slash-bone-block technique. Complications include infection, hematoma, and phantom pain. Now, let's end this review session talking about complications of tibial shaft fractures. The ones to know include anterior knee pain, malunion, nonunion, which is defined as no healing at 9 months, malrotation, compartment syndrome, nerve injury, and infection.
So starting with anterior knee pain, the incidence is greater than 30 to 50% with intramedullary nailing. Risk factors include infrapatellar nailing with patellar tendon splitting and a paratendon approach. Note that suprapatellar nailing may have a lower rate of anterior knee pain. Note that anterior knee pain is more common if the nail is left proud proximally. Note that the lateral radiograph is the best radiographic view to evaluate the proximal nail position. However, note that pain relief is unpredictable with nail removal. Moving on to malunion, as far as incidence, the incidence for all tibial shaft fractures is between 8 to 10%. Malunion incidence is higher in proximal third tibial fractures at up to 50%. Malunion for proximal third tibial fractures is specifically a valgus procurvatum deformity. Note that the patellar tendon pulls the proximal fragment into extension, while the hamstring tendons and gastrocnemius pull the distal fragment into flexion or procurvatum. Remember that distal third fractures have a higher rate of valgus malunion with intramedullary nailing compared to plating. Risk factors for malunion include definitive management with casting or external fixation. The most common deformity is varus with non-surgical management. Varus malunion may place the patient at risk for ipsilateral ankle pain and stiffness. Other risk factors include a starting point that is too medial with intramedullary nailing and poor reduction intraoperatively. As far as treatment, note that prevention is the most important. Adequate reduction and a proper starting point when nailing are crucial. If malalignment is noted immediately after surgery, return to the operating room is appropriate with removal of the nail with reduction and nail reinsertion. If malunion is appreciated at later follow-up, eventual nail removal and tibial osteotomy can be considered. Moving on to non-union, which is defined as no healing at 9 months. As far as the incidence, this is estimated between 2-10%. to Risk factors include open fracture, cortical contact of less than 50%, and a transverse fracture pattern. As far as treatment, first be sure to rule out infection. Non-union can be treated with nail dynamization if axially stable. If not axially stable, you can perform exchange nailing. Reamed exchange nailing is most appropriate for aseptic diaphyseal tibial non-unions. Oblique tibial shaft fractures have the highest rate of union when treated with exchange nailing. Consider revision with plating in the setting of metaphyseal non-unions. Other treatment options include posterolateral bone grafting if there's significant bone loss. BMP7, otherwise known as OP1, has been shown to be equivalent to autograft and is often used in cases of recalcitrant non-unions. Compression plating has been shown to have a 92-96% to union rate after open tibial fractures initially treated with external fixation. Finally, fibular osteotomy of tibiofibular length discrepancy is associated with healed or an intact fibula. Moving on to malrotation. As far as incidence, this is highest after intramedullary nailing of a distal third tibia fracture, and note that this increases the risk of adjacent ankle arthrosis. As far as treatment, you should always assess rotation in the operating room. Be sure to obtain perfect lateral fluoroscopic images of the knee, then rotate the C-arm 105 to 110 degrees to obtain a mortise view of the ipsilateral ankle. Note that you may have a reduced risk of malunion with adjunctive fibular plating. Moving on to compartment syndrome, the estimated incidence is between 1-9% to and can occur in both closed and open tibia shaft fractures. Risk factors include high-energy injuries, as well as significant soft tissue injuries. Treatment includes emergent four-compartment fasciotomy. Moving on to nerve injury, the true incidence is unknown and is believed to be a rare complication. Risk factors include list plate application without opening for distal screw fixation near plate holes 11 through 13 puts the superficial perineal nerve at risk of injury due to close proximity. Note that the saphenous nerve can be injured during placement of locking screws and transient perineal nerve palsy can be seen after closed nailing. This can manifest with EHL weakness and first dorsal web space with decreased sensation. 
As far as treatment, these are usually treated non-operatively with variable recovery expected. Know that these patients may need an AFO if a foot drop is present. Finally, as far as infection, the incidence is approximately 5%. Risk factors include open fracture, severe soft tissue injury with contamination, and longer time to definitive soft tissue coverage. As far as treatment, these patients may require IND or eventual removal of hardware. Remember that use of wound vacuum-assisted closure does not decrease the risk of infection. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. Which of the following is an FDA-approved adjunctive treatment for an acute open tibia fracture being treated with an intramedullary nail? And the choices are 1, calcitonin, 2, RHBMP2, 3, RHBMP7, 4, teriparatide, and 5, bisphosphonates. The correct answer to this question is 2, RHBMP2. So RHBMP2 has FDA approval for use when treating acute open tibia fractures with an intramedullary nail. Open tibial shaft fractures can present many treatment challenges. Although its use remains somewhat controversial, RHBMP2 has been shown to have many positive effects when used to treat acute open tibia fractures. These benefits include accelerated early fracture healing, decreased rates of hardware failure, decreased need for subsequent bone grafting procedures, and decreased infection rates. RHBMP2 does have FDA approval specifically for use in open tibia fractures being treated with an intramedullary nail. Alt et al. present a comparison of patients with grade 3 open tibia fractures treated with unreamed nails with or without RHBMP2. They found significant decreases in need for secondary interventions such as bone grafting or nail exchange. Mean time to fracture healing was less in the RHBMP2 group, but this difference was not statistically significant. Govinder et al. present a prospective randomized study of 450 patients with open tibia fractures treated with an intramedullary nail with or without RHBMP2. They found statistically significant decreases in the need for secondary intervention, hardware failure, and infection, as well as faster wound healing and faster time to fracture union. Wei et al. provide a meta-analysis regarding the use of RHBMP2 in open tibia fractures. Due to decreased rates of secondary interventions, they estimated a net savings of 6,000 per case when RHBMP2 was used. They found no significant difference in rates of infection, postoperative pain, hardware failure, or fracture healing at 20 weeks. Moving on to the next question. A 27-year-old male presented to the trauma bay following a motor vehicle crash and was diagnosed with a comminuted open tibia fracture. He was subsequently treated with an irrigation and debridement and unreamed intramedullary nail. At four months follow-up, despite some signs of healing, the fracture is not fully united. Which of the following is true? And the choices are 1. Patients should be scheduled for exchange nailing. 2. Use of an unreamed nail increases this patient's risk of infection. 3. Use of an unreamed nail increases this patient's risk of non-union. 4. The patient should continue to be observed without intervention. And 5. Use of an unreamed nail decreased this patient's risk of infection. The correct answer to this question is 4. The patient should continue to be observed without intervention. So tibia fractures, open or closed, when treated with an intramedullary nail, can take 6 months or longer to achieve clinical and radiographic healing and should be observed for at least 6 months before secondary intervention is considered. Open tibia fractures should be managed with debridement and irrigation initially. The choice of definitive fixation between reamed and unreamed nailing remains controversial. Recent randomized control studies have examined the outcomes of reamed and unreamed nailing for both closed and open tibia shaft fractures. 
Bandari et al. present a prospective randomized study of patients with tibia fractures randomized to reamed or unreamed tibial nails. Surgeons participating in the study were mandated to delay intervention for delayed union-slash-non-union until six months after the initial procedure. The authors found that many tibia fractures in both the reamed and unreamed nailing groups progressed to union without secondary intervention with this six-month delay. Finkmeyer et al. present a prospective randomized trial of tibia fractures treated with reamed or unreamed intramedullary nails. For closed fractures, they found a higher rate of union at 4 months in the reamed group, but no difference at 6 or 12 months. There was no difference in union rates for open fractures at any time point. They found no differences in other variables such as infection or compartment syndrome. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, patient should be scheduled for exchange nailing is incorrect as this fracture has signs of healing at 4 months and should continue to be observed until at least 6 months before a secondary operation is considered. Answer 2, use of an unreamed nail increased this patient's risk of infection, and answer 5, use of an unreamed nail decreased this patient's risk of infection are both incorrect as there is no difference in infection risk between reamed and unreamed nails for open tibia fractures. Finally, answer 3, use of an unreamed nail increased this patient's risk of non-union is incorrect as there is no difference in the rate of eventual union between reamed and unreamed nails for open tibia fractures. And moving on to the final question. Percutaneous placement of a lateral proximal tibial locking plate that extends down to the distal third of the leg is associated with postoperative decreased sensation of which of the following distributions? And the choices are 1. Medial hind foot, 2. Lateral hind foot, 3. First dorsal web space, 4. Dorsal midfoot, and 5. Plantar foot. The correct answer to this question is 4. Dorsal midfoot. So placement of long lateral tibial plates have been shown to have a risk of iatrogenic injury to the superficial perineal nerve, which has a sensory distribution to the dorsal foot. This risk is seen especially with percutaneous approaches, such as those used with the list plate. The reference by DeAngelis et al. found a risk of superficial perineal injury with percutaneous screw placement of holes 11 through 13 in the list plate. The article by Roberts et al. noted a slightly increased distance to the neurovascular bundle when interlocking tibial nails in a lateral to medial direction compared to medial to lateral locking and slightly increased biomechanical strength when locking in a medial to lateral direction. The article by Woodlinsky et al. notes a risk of iatrogenic injury to the deep perineal nerve and anterior tibial artery with an anterolateral approach to the distal tibia, but notes the superficial perineal nerve is safe with an appropriate exposure. That's all for this review about tibial shaft fracture. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast. <laughs> <laughs>